Hey everyone, and welcome back to Big Mad True Crime, where we get big mad over true crime. I'm your host, Heather Ashley, and today's case is out of Antioch, California. Small talk sucks, so let's dive in. Twenty-three-year-old Alexis Gabe was everything you'd want in a daughter, sister, or best friend. She was funny, loyal, always there when you needed her, and when she said she was going to do something, she did it. She was super creative and was an amazing photographer and artist. She dabbled in painting and digital art, and if she had it her way, she'd use the nursing degree she had just gotten and be an artist on the side. No one ever could have imagined that she'd disappear before any of those dreams could become her reality. In 2018, Alexis started dating a guy named Marshall Jones. They dated for three years and he became a part of her family. For the length of their relationship, they did almost everything together, but in November of 2021, they broke up. Alexis took some time to herself, finishing up school and focusing on work and family, but according to friends, she did start dating a new guy in the beginning of 2022. Wednesday, January 26, 2022, started off like any other normal day for Alexis. She ran errands, checked with her brother to see if she had any mail with the post office, spent some time with her family, and around 6 p.m., she got a call from a friend. After talking to her friend, Alexis left the house, and as far as anyone else knew, she planned to be home later that night. She always took her brother to school in the mornings, so when he woke up and noticed that she nor her car were there, everyone started to get concerned. Alexis wasn't the type to stay out all night or forget to let anyone know where she was. She definitely wouldn't have left her brother high and dry trying to figure out how to get to school. Alexis was a 10 out of 10 when it came to routine, and with this being so out of character, her family knew immediately that something wasn't right. Her phone was going straight to voicemail, and according to her friends, not only would she never let her phone die, if by some reverse miracle it did die, she would have gone to a friend's house or even to a store to use their phone to let her family know not to worry. By 1 p.m., with no word from Alexis, her family called the police to report her missing. They didn't skip a beat when they deemed it missing under suspicious circumstances. Police went down their list of firsts, calling hospitals and jails to see if maybe she'd gotten into an accident or had gotten into some kind of trouble, but police were pretty certain she wasn't going to be at any of the jails. Alexis had never been in trouble, and they were right. Alexis most definitely had not been arrested, and she wasn't at any of the local hospitals either. With that, both the police and her family set out to locate her SUV. If they could find her vehicle, maybe they could find her, or at least get an idea of where she might be. And it didn't take them long to find it. Within three hours of being reported missing, ABC7 reports that Alexis's two nieces found her SUV. It was found unlocked with the door open and the keys still in the ignition. Alexis's friend told KTVU that Alexis loved her SUV and would never have just left it there. It didn't make any sense, but thankfully, where it was found was at the entrance to a neighborhood that was probably going to have a ton of home security cameras. So there was hope that they could get a glimpse of what time it was parked there. 
Alexis's SUV was parked on the corner of Trenton Street and Oakley Road, where a neighborhood meets a main road. Initial reports said that Alexis wouldn't have any reason to be in that area, but her friend Maria spoke to NBC Bay Area and said that she actually lived about a block away. Alexis and Maria were extremely close, but Maria was out of town the night Alexis disappeared, which Alexis would have known. So while the area where her SUV was found had some significance to it, Alexis wouldn't have had any reason to be there at that time. She would have known Maria wasn't home. With her SUV located, her nieces called Alexis's brother and parents, who got to the intersection as quickly as they could. Her brother told ABC7 that when they got there, her father told him to open the trunk, something that no father should ever have to say. Fearing the worst, Alexis's brother opened the trunk, but to their relief, it was empty. The rest of her car was also empty. No cell phone, nothing. In trying to track down Alexis's last movements, her family contacted everyone she knew, and to their surprise, found out that after leaving her parents' house that evening, she'd gone to her ex-boyfriend Marshall's house, which was a shock to them. I mean, she had a boyfriend and no one else knew that she was still in contact with Marshall. Marshall told her family that she left his house at around 9 p.m., which should be easy enough to confirm because he lived smack dab in the middle of a neighborhood that was also certain to be riddled with ring cameras. When questioned by police, he said that she probably went to a friend's house after leaving his. Conveniently enough, her car was found near a friend's house, just not one that was in town. And while Alexis's car was a block away from Maria's house, it was also just four and a half miles from Marshall's house, which is still pretty close. By Friday, January 28th, the investigation into Alexis's disappearance was in full swing. Her family organized their own search, which started at the Walmart on Lone Tree Way, which was less than a mile from Marshall's house. The fact that they were searching there, as opposed to closer to where her SUV was found, said a lot about where their head was at. What was more likely, that she had disappeared near her ex-boyfriend's house, or that she had parked her SUV on a random street corner four miles away, left the keys in it, and then walked off and let her cell phone die? Alexis's family and friends passed out flyers, lined the streets with black ribbons, and looked for any sign of her. Her boyfriend joined in the search, but one person was noticeably absent. Marshall. He was the last person to see her, had clearly maintained some kind of relationship with her after three years of dating, and the search was conveniently placed right by his house, but he wasn't taking any part in it. One of the searchers said that Marshall actually came home while they were walking around his street, but instead of helping them or even talking to them at all, he just went inside. On Monday, January 31st, police announced that they'd recovered several images and videos that they felt would help in their investigation. There was, in fact, a metric button of security cameras. And they weren't just from where her SUV was found, they had some from Marshall's neighborhood as well. On top of that, they were also able to get a hold of some cell phone data. According to KRON, Alexis got to Marshall's house at 6.37 p.m., so it sounds like she got that call from a friend, left her parents' apartment, got some gas, and headed straight to Marshall's house. Her phone and car stayed there for the next several hours. 
At 9.10 p.m., 10 minutes after Marshall says Alexis left, Marshall made a one-hour and 59-minute phone call to his dad, who lived in Washington state. It doesn't sound outlandish for someone to have a two-hour conversation with their dad, but it is weird that Marshall's phone didn't so much as lift to wake after 10 minutes into that call. Your phone records damn near everything you do, including when you lift your phone. Marshall's phone didn't register any movement during that call between 9.20 p.m. and 11.09 p.m. Three minutes after Marshall's phone was essentially laid down and left untouched, Alexis's SUV turned on. Much like phones, most of our vehicles also record damn near everything. We basically voluntarily microchip ourselves with our smartphones and vehicles. When Alexis's SUV turned on, it left Marshall's house and started to drive away. Her phone followed the same path as her vehicle. This would make sense if Alexis was the one driving, but analysis of her car showed that the route she took to leave Marshall's house that night wasn't the one she normally took. Her vehicle tracked every route she took, and the path it took on the night of her disappearance was completely different than the ones before the first sign that it might not be her behind the wheel. At 9.35 p.m., KRON reports that Alexis's vehicle reached its final destination at the corner of Trenton and Oakley. Mapped out, it should only take about 11 minutes to get there, but it looks like there were several additional turns made. Because security footage caught the vehicle being parked, it also caught a glimpse of the person who walked out of it. They couldn't tell who it was, but they did know that Alexis's phone was moving along with them. It wasn't until four minutes later that they knew without a shadow of a doubt that it wasn't Alexis who parked her car there and it wasn't Alexis who had her phone. A security camera caught a tall African-American male between 5'11 and 6 feet tall wearing what looks like a hoodie under a jacket with a PPE mask on and a beard poking through. If you're wondering if that description matches Marshall, it does to a T. Based on the background of the photo released by police, it looks like it was taken just west of where Alexis's SUV was found at the intersection of Oakley Road and Bedlin Lane. There wasn't another soul in the background of the photo, so it doesn't look like this person could have been anyone other than the one who ditched Alexis's vehicle. Four minutes after passing that camera, Alexis's phone stopped transmitting. Even though her phone had stopped following the mystery man, surveillance videos caught him several times and all walking back in the direction of Marshall's house. The last footage of him was at 11.03 p.m. on a street which is at most 0.2 miles from his house. Six minutes later, Marshall's phone registered that it was being used again. Marshall was either the person who ditched Alexis's car or the unluckiest victim of coincidence in the entire history of coincidence. On February 1st, police executed a search warrant on Marshall's home. Several large bags of evidence were removed, along with what KRON reports was a vacuum cleaner. In an article covering the warrant, law enforcement stated that they had questioned him more than once. Remember, he told them that she'd probably gone to a friend's house, but they said that they weren't in contact with Marshall anymore. 
knowing that they just served a warrant on his house, it sounded a lot like Marshall was no longer cooperating with the investigation, which, by the way, he was not. KTVU later reported that he'd refused to speak to police several times and had conveniently taken a trip to Washington just days after her disappearance. We know his dad lived up there, but he also had some friends up there as well. Two weeks went by after that search warrant without many updates in Alexis's case. Billboards went up, more than 100 people handed out flyers and t-shirts with their information on it, and more than two dozen officers worked her case day in and day out. The Antioch Herald quotes law enforcement as saying, The investigation into the disappearance of Alexis Gabe has remained at the forefront of the Oakley Police Department's daily operations. We have also remained in frequent contact with the Gabe family throughout our investigation, and we support them in their efforts as they try to locate Alexis as well. We understand there is a great deal of public interest in this case. We remain committed to the tenets of completing a thorough investigation and making sure the integrity of our investigation outweighs public curiosity. The Oakley Police Department remains committed to locating Alexis, and we are continuing our path towards a complete investigation. On February 25th, Class Kids Foundation came to Antioch to assist in the search. Class Kids is an incredible search team that not only assists in the physical search, but also teaches volunteers how to search appropriately so that when the foundation leaves, they have the proper tools to continue on without them. Turnout for the searches had dwindled as the weeks passed, but the presence of the foundation drummed up new interest. The East Bay Time reports that hundreds of people showed up for the weekend search as they sifted through tall grass, dense woods, waterways, and marshy areas. As far as anyone knew at the time, the searches came up empty. Two months later, in April of 2022, law enforcement held a press conference stating they didn't believe Alexis left on her own and that they strongly suspect foul play, a conclusion I think we all reached pretty early on. Her father told the world, it's been three long, excruciating months since Alexis disappeared. Since the day our daughter went missing, we've questioned our faith, have been completely overwhelmed and filled with doubt and despair. As their despair crept into every second of every day, they held on to hope. They told KPIX that they just want their baby back and strongly believe she's still alive. On May 7th, the investigation into Alexis's disappearance took an unexpected turn. Police were seen conducting a search in Pioneer, which was 80 miles northeast of everywhere else they'd searched. In comparison to Antioch, it's pretty barren with a lot of dense woods and dirt. The search area seemed way too specific to have not come from a credible lead. Four days after the mystery lead that led police to Pioneer, law enforcement executed another search on Marshall's home. The last time they searched, the parameters of what they were searching for weren't known to the public, but this time everyone knew. Investigators were looking for any indication that whatever happened to Alexis happened in that house. The results of that search weren't immediately made known, but the investigation was sent into warp speed. Call it coincidence, but the day after the second search warrant, KTVU reported that Alexis's phone case was found. Not her phone, just the case it was once in. But it hadn't just recently been found. It was found back when class kids had been in Antioch all the way back in February. The case was black with a pretty unique picture of Tupac on it, so the chance that it wasn't Alexis's was pretty slim, but police sent it out for testing anyway. The results came back with Marshall's DNA not only 
on it, but inside of it. Sure, she and Marshall had dated for a long time, but what were the chances that his DNA ever got behind her phone and on the inside of her phone case, unless he took the case off at some point, you know, to make it easier to destroy? It goes without saying that all eyes were on Marshall. At 5.54 p.m. on June 1st of this year, several departments in Seattle, along with the U.S. Marshals, attempted to serve a search warrant at an apartment complex in Kent, Washington. The warrant was for someone wanted for murder. Agents surrounded the building, officers had canines on hand, and men with shields approached the apartment door. They knocked and identified themselves as someone opened the door. In a video posted by the police department, you can see someone wearing a white shirt walk out of the door and lunge at the officers with a knife. Three officers from two separate agencies fired a total of what sounds like four shots as the man with the knife fell to the ground. The man they were serving the warrant for, the man who lunged at officers with a knife, was Marshall. He died on scene along with any information he had. The following day, a press conference was held, and this time, they announced that they believed Alexis was the victim of homicide and that the man they believed to be responsible was dead. They stated that forensic, electronic, and DNA evidence was enough to prove that Alexis was murdered and that Marshall was responsible. They'd gone so far as to tap his phone, which isn't the easiest warrant to get. While they believe Marshall acted alone in killing Alexis, they do believe he may have had help covering up her death after the fact. Alexis's mom said that investigators already had a person of interest, but that she couldn't say who yet, though NBC Bay Area reported that it may be someone in Marshall's family. Her father spoke at the press conference and said, What happened to Marshall was tragic and unexpected. My wife cried so hard last night upon hearing of his passing. He was our daughter's first love. He became part of our family. We had no idea he was capable of doing something like this to her. While her parents had no idea he was capable, ABC7 reports that a friend wound up telling them that Marshall had threatened to kill himself if Alexis didn't get back together with him. And let's be clear, that's an unequivocal form of abuse, a form of manipulation by an abuser that puts an immeasurable amount of pressure on their victim, essentially blaming their victim for their death if their victim doesn't do as they're told. Alexis's father went on to say, We didn't want him dead. We wanted him arrested to pay for his sins. We wanted to meet him face to face. We wanted to look him in the eye and ask him why. Ask him where is Alexis? I know police are saying that our daughter is gone, but our daughter will remain alive in our minds and in our hearts. We will continue to search for her until we find her. With police stating in no uncertain terms that they believe Marshall killed Alexis, the hold on information in her case lifted, and it was one avalanche of what in the actual fuck after another. The first info bomb that was dropped was about that search in Pioneer. Like we questioned earlier, it wasn't random at all. Police had previously gotten a warrant for Marshall's sister's house, and according to KRON, when they got there, she gave detectives a handwritten note she'd found in her garbage. 
They were step-by-step directions to Pioneer, and the handwriting was a match to Marshall's. For reasons that seem pretty obvious now, Marshall clearly didn't seem to want to use his phone's GPS to get him there. There's a photo of the directions in the Help Bring Alexis Gabe Home Facebook group. They start in a residential neighborhood in Vacaville where Fox News says his sister lived. He had visited her a couple of days after Alexis disappeared. I mapped out the directions he wrote down, and they're certainly not the fastest route. Sacramento is in the middle of Vacaville and Pioneer, and it looks like he takes a bunch of unnecessary roads through Sacramento, which should have just been a straight shot through. His shitty directions seem to have done him dirty, because according to CBS, he got lost along the way. He had turned his phones off during the trip, and yes, I said phones, and we'll get to that, but he had to turn one of them back on to get back on track. Throughout the directions, Marshall made sure to note landmarks and reminders to pay attention to signs and marked his final destination at Defender Grade Road in Pioneer. The problem with that is that Marshall wrote to turn left onto Defender Grade Road, but from the direction he was coming, he would have had to have taken a right. He either wrote left instead of right on accident, or he went past where his directions ended, then turned back around to make that left on Defender Grade Road. Detectives believe that the handwritten directions lead to where he disposed of Alexis's body, which is why they were seen searching there. The next revelation that was dropped in Alexis's case was that, according to KTVU, a friend of Marshall's came forward after he died and told police that Marshall had called him previously to tell him that he was thinking about killing Alexis and wanted to know the best place to hide a body. This would have been fantastic information to know at literally any point in time. Marshall and this friend reportedly had a whole-ass conversation about it and landed on the best hiding place being a septic tank or a wooded area. The friend claims to have never met Alexis and that he thought Marshall was joking. But Pioneer has an abundance of both septic tanks and wooded areas. We see this way too often where after the fact, we find out that someone had joked about doing exactly what happened. So let's normalize not thinking that theoretical plans of homicide are jokes. With that information, septic tanks were drained, cadaver dogs were used, and more than 8 million gallons of water were drained from a pond in Pioneer, but there was still no sign of Alexis. The area can get pretty dense and is known for being riddled with snakes and poison oak and definitely is not a place for unseasoned searchers to try and take on themselves. After finding out about Marshall's phone call to his friend, Mercury News announced that Alexis's cell phone case wasn't the only part of her phone that had been found. As it turns out, her shattered phone screen had also been found right along the path that the not-so-mystery man took after abandoning her SUV. Finding a shattered cell phone screen doesn't seem like the craziest thing in the world, but detectives were going to build the strongest case they could, so they actually sent it out for testing, and as a shock to no one, it also had Marshall's DNA on it. The last bombshell to hit the media was a timeline put together by KRON. It detailed Marshall's movements in the days following Alexis's disappearance. We know that police had spoken to him before he decided to stop cooperating, but what we didn't know was that he'd actually given them his phone and consent to search his house, just not all of his house. He let them search everywhere except the spare bedroom and the master bedroom. One can only assume that the master bedroom had a bathroom in it, 
And when investigators got their official warrant to search his home, they found that the shower curtains were missing. I'm sure he wasn't too worried about handing over his phone because all they'd find was that he talked to his dad for two hours. And as far as that one hour and 59 minute phone call goes, I haven't seen anything that explains it. Law enforcement has never commented on what Marshall said when he made it or what was happening on the other end of the line in Washington. On January 28th, two days after Alexis disappeared, Marshall drove to his mom's house and unloaded several big, heavy garbage bags. I've seen reports saying they were either unloaded in the backyard or in the garage, but frankly, that's neither here nor there. He unloaded them nonetheless. After unloading them, he and his mom went to pick his phone back up and then went to Metro PCS to get a second phone. If you're being investigated in regards to a missing person and you go out and buy a second phone, there is a solid chance you're up to some shady shit, but what do I know? After getting the second phone, Marshall and his mom went back to her house, and while she threw a karaoke party, KRON reports that Marshall loaded those heavy garbage bags back into his SUV and drove over to his sister's house. He got there at 6.41 p.m., and just 30 minutes later, at 7.11 p.m., he left her house and turned both of his shady cell phones off, only turning one of them back on when he got lost. Marshall's phones were off for five and a half hours before they powered back on at 12.43 p.m. on the 29th. It pinged in the area of Highway 160 and Highway 12. He got back to his mom's house at 1 a.m. and then back to his sister's house an hour and 41 minutes later at 2.41 p.m. You can see why the police stated earlier that they thought he might have had help covering things up and why NBC Bay Area said that it may have been someone in Marshall's family. Unbeknownst to the entire public, all the way back in May, KRON reports that Marshall's mom had actually been arrested on suspicion of aiding and abetting. The warrant was taken out by police directly from a judge, skipping the DA, who's usually the middleman. But when the DA got the case, they declined to press charges and Marshall's mom was released from jail. Alexis's father actually started a petition to get the DA to press charges, and more than 10,000 people have signed it. But according to Mercury News, the DA released a statement saying, To date, there is insufficient evidence to establish that Miss Clark knew Marshall Jones killed Alexis, or that Miss Clark assisted Jones after the fact. However, if additional evidence surfaces, the DA's office would review it for possible criminal prosecution. Going back to K.R. Owen's timeline, on January 30th, Marshall called out of work saying that he had something to take care of. The day after that, Marshall's own sister kicked him out of her house. He was later seen on surveillance carrying an extended magazine for a gun and was later seen with a gun itself. The most damning news in Alexis's case came in August of this year. Her father spoke to ABC7 and made it clear that he'd seen UV light photos from Marshall's bathroom that shattered him. He specifically mentioned the bathroom door, the bathtub, and the washing machine. KRON confirmed that the blood test from inside the lid of the washing machine did come back as Alexis's. Her DNA was also found in the back of Marshall's SUV, but the source of that DNA couldn't be determined. 
Alexis's father continued his interview with ABC7 and stated that he'd seen actual video footage of Marshall unloading those garbage bags at his mom's house. He told the station that they seemed pretty heavy and that he had to ask the police what that meant. Alexis's mother and father had to ask detectives if what they were looking at meant that their daughter was in pieces. It was at that moment that all of the hope they'd held out that Alexis might still be alive was shattered. He told ABC7, It confirmed when we saw those images and videos that she is really gone. He told the East Bay Times, We came to our tough decision to finally accept that our only daughter is gone. They vowed to never stop searching for her, and that search still seems to be focused in Pioneer. Had Marshall taken the quickest route to Pioneer and driven straight back, it should have only taken him three hours and 40 minutes. Considering the detour he took in Sacramento, it would bump it up to around four hours and 14 minutes. If he left at 7.11 p.m. and got back at 1 a.m., that's five hours and 49 minutes, leaving one hour and 35 minutes unaccounted for. Officials and volunteers continue to work through thick brush and dense woods looking for Alexis. It's a lot of ground to cover, but on October 1st, they truly thought they had found something. Volunteers searching just off Defender Grade Road came across a black garbage bag and a ton of bones. And I mean a ton. News articles posted that they thought they might have found Alexis's body, but a forensic anthropologist quickly ruled that the bones were not human. To this day, the search for Alexis continues and those who love her have vowed not to stop until she's found. If you have any information about the disappearance of Alexis Gabe or where her body might be, please contact the Alexis Gabe tip line at 925-625-7009. There is a $100,000 reward. For photos pertaining to this case, check out Alexis's highlight at the top of my Instagram profile at the Heather Ashley and join me there tonight at 8.30 p.m. Eastern, where we go live and talk about today's episode and all other true crime cases on your mind. To get access to ad-free and bonus episodes, subscribe on Apple or head over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash bigmadtruecrime, where for just one whole dollar a month, your episodes are totally ad-free. I'll be bringing you a brand new case next week, and I cannot wait. But until then, we out. 